Well, my guest today needs no introduction. It's Dr. Susan Rogers. How are you doing today, Susan? Doing pretty well, thanks. It's uh, it's okay. You know, we got a pandemic going on, and so conditions are less than perfect. But uh, when are they ever perfect? So we're rolling with it. Yeah, exactly. And it's a very exciting day in Prince World. Uh, of course, the Sun of the Times Super Deluxe Edition dropped today. Three discs of vault material, I believe. I haven't had a chance to check them out in depth yet, so I don't know how in depth I can get with my commentary of the uh, <laughs> vault tracks on this podcast, but hopefully soon I'll be doing an in-depth review with a panel of fellow fans, and that should be exciting, but Susan, I don't know how you want to start this out. I mean, should we talk about just the recording of the album in general, or should we get into specific tracks? You know, it's interesting. Um, uh, over the past month, I've done a lot of interviews, as has Matt Fink and Eric Leeds and Wendy and Lisa and uh, Susanna Melvoin, a lot of us, you know, we're talking to the press. And uh, it gives you a good opportunity to understand a little bit the job of the press and what what they're trying to do. Now, some of the interviews we've done, um, they're asking specific questions because they have a thesis or they have an idea, and they ask us questions to see if our answers correspond with that idea. For example, someone I spoke to just yesterday had the idea, he had the idea, that Prince's rift with Warner Brothers began when they wouldn't let him release a three-record set crystal ball and they made it they forced him to do a double album and and we talked about that and I actually don't think that there was any problem there I think Prince realized ultimately that they were right about that but so so sometimes the conversations go like that like these people are real experts uh, and they've done a lot of studying they're scholarly and they want to know they want to fact check and they want to know about that and then then I've had interviews with folks and there was a, a French television program, and straight up, right from the get-go, the interviewer said, I'm not a Prince fan. <laughs> he said, I wow. don't know much about Prince's music, so tell me. And he would ask these questions, why is Prince great? And I appreciate that as well, because naturally, all of us have different tastes in music, so right. some of us are going to know Prince very intimately. Others uh, are be like, yeah, I guess he's pretty interesting, right? So uh, whatever you think your listeners might be interested in, in, in knowing about or hearing about. Okay. I saw the, the 1987 New Year's Eve uh, concert, the first mm -hmm. concert from the soundstage at Paisley Park premiered on YouTube last night. And I watched that, and I was I was struck by the tremendous amount of energy that Prince had, and he just kept going for like two hours and twelve minutes. Uh, and he's notorious for having that type of energy. Also, you know, recording. Uh, so, could you talk a little bit about? <laughs> Could you talk a little bit about the time put in? I mean, the the yeah. countless hours and the early mornings and all that in the yeah. in the recording studio. Yeah, um, 
When I joined him, it was 1983, he was in his 20s, so he was a young genius, a young genius who was um, intelligent, sensitive, he was motivated, he was ambitious, he had a lot of work to do. And uh, for some people in that kind of a situation, especially for people like Prince, and I, I relate to that too because I grew up similarly in a lower middle class background, for some of us, we feel like we may only get one shot at this. You don't feel, he certainly did not feel entitled to success. I recognize right. that too. I didn't feel it either. So for many of us, you, 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 you take that opportunity and you work as hard and as fast as you can because you're always afraid that that window of opportunity is going to slam shut just as quickly right. as it opened. So at that time in his 20s, he uh, worked a lot because his ideas just kept coming and coming and coming and coming. He was, he was hyper creative. I've got a couple of books on my shelf behind me on the neurobiology of creativity. So I've done a little reading about it. And I can tell you that a, a person as creative as Prince, it's pretty rare. It's a, that's a pretty unusual brain that is that creative. Definitely. So anyway, yeah. So yeah. since he was that creative and he was also so focused and self-disciplined uh, and, and he knew how to put blinders on and to, to, to block out the noise, to block out other temptations like the temptations of going out and spending a lot of money or being uh, socially very active, he would block all that out and focus just monomaniacally on work. Wow. I mean, it was, it was quite extraordinary, uh, quite extraordinary to, to be with him. So for those of us who were in the studio with him, we spent the same hours. As long as he was recording, I needed to be there. And so those hours were very, very long. But I joined him as a fan. I was a Prince fan when I came to work for him. He was my favorite artist in the world. So I always knew how lucky I was. And, and, and I was always appreciative, no matter how hard it was. I appreciated being there. Oh, yeah. I mean, his work ethic is pretty much uh, unparalleled as far as as far as I can tell. Um, and for me, he's an inspiration not only in terms of work ethic, which I don't have one-tenth of the work ethic he did, but I wish I did. And I consider myself creative but i'm very streaky like it comes in streaks and when it comes it pours out and then for long stretches i'm not inspired anymore and it doesn't it doesn't seem to flow but yes he's definitely an inspiration as far as something to aspire to as far as the sheer drive and motivation to create um, so for me, it's very, uh, very inspirational, but the sign of the times era, and we've, we've heard a little bit about this in the podcast series from the current, which you were a part of the current, uh, Minnesota public radio hmm. and also sanctioned by the Prince estate. Very, very cool and insightful. Uh, podcast series but we've heard that this era was sort of a transition period for Prince he was 
wanting to break away from the revolution, wanting to break away from sort of the past and reinvent himself, which he did many, many times over the course of his career. But can you talk a little bit about his his mindset as far as um, things going on in his world, both personally and professionally and in terms of events going on in the world like the burgeoning AIDS crisis mm-hmm. and the Space Shuttle Challenger explosion and stuff like that and the earthquake mm-hmm. we heard about in Los yeah. Angeles that he went through that really sort all these events were sort of the catalyst for not only the title track but also songs like The Cross and songs like that. Could you talk a little bit about Prince's mindset, you know, taking all that information in and sort of going within himself to create such a socially relevant, certainly for that time, and also in the present day, socially relevant uh, album like Side of the Time? Yeah, you're absolutely right there. Uh, and and uh, when I a- after I've answered your question, I, I'd like to circle back to something you said earlier about his his ethics and bursts of creativity. But for right now, um, he was not inclined to talk about what he was thinking or talk about what he was feeling. At least when I was with him, anyway. Maybe when he was with his friends or with a girlfriend or with his management or whatever. But when I was with him, it's because we were working. And if we were working, it meant that he's playing. He's not talking. He's playing or he's singing. So he didn't say much. But I knew him really well because I was with him pretty much every day and for long stretches of time for over four years during this very creative period. So I knew him. I knew his face. I knew his body language. I knew his moods. I knew how he behaved when he was in a really good mood and really hopeful. And I knew how he behaved when he was in a bad mood. I can say that for sure. Sign of the Times, compared to the other records that he and I did together, Purple Rain, Around the World in a Day, the Parade album, all the stuff in between, it was more serious, it was more somber, for good reason. So the revolution had broken up. Now, the revolution contained three of his closest friends in the whole world, Wendy, Lisa, and Bobby Z. So he's not only missing their musicianship, he's missing his friends. I mean, these are people he he loved and relied on. So his friends aren't there. Now, in addition to that, he's got um, Susanna Melvoin and his engagement to her. And engagement's a big deal. I mean, you're saying, I'm going to be with you from here until our last days. We're going to commit to each other. And he's realizing, as she is too, but uh, I'll focus on him. He's he's realizing he might not be able to do this. It just might be beyond his capacity. And that had to have hurt. He loved Susanna very, very much. She was his love, but she was also his friend. And if he was going to commit to anybody, it would have been her. He loved her, but he couldn't do it. And there was tension there. So he's realizing, all right, my friends, my band are gone. My sweetheart, ultimately, is gone, and he must have been asking himself, can I do this? Can I get married? 
can I, will I ever have a family? Will I ever have children? Is, is this impossible for me? And then on top of that, there's the transition that's happening in music. You know, by 87, by late 87, uh, it was very, very clear that rap and hip hop were going to be the dominant forms on the pop charts. Now, the rhythm section there in rap and hip hop, it's a different kind of rhythm section. Melody is very, very different. Lyrical content is very different. So music was changing in a way that his music couldn't keep up with. And he would have been a fool if he had tried to become a rapper overnight. I mean, so he's, he knows that his style of music is also leaving him. And there is the world that is changing. And there's one more important transition, which is he's approaching 30. So when he did Purple Rain, he was a young genius of 24, 25 years old. But he's coming up on very soon the age of 30. And now it's not enough to be a, a boy wonder, a clever young man. Now he has to show that he's thoughtful, that he's a thoughtful man that has more than one great record in him. All these things were swirling around around the time that we recorded the pieces that became Sign of the Times. Very, very interesting. And as far as one of, one of the questions that my friends asked me to ask you on Facebook was specifically about the Camille tracks. Was was that sound a studio mistake or was that something deliberately done on Prince's part to pitch up the sound of his voice for the Camille tracks? You know, it's interesting because a lot of the press has made a big deal about that. They've talked about Prince uh, discovering something new for Camille. And I have to point out to them, that's not new. He'd been doing that for years. Actually, he wasn't the only one using very speed on the tape machine to change the timbre of his voice or an instrument. So typically the way you'd use very speed is if you're there and you're working with the singer. Let's say you're doing a big rock song and the singer needs to get up to that high note. And they just can't do it. They've been out partying the night before and their voice is shot. They can't get up to that high note. So you take the tape machine, you put it on very speed, you bring the speed down a little bit, which lowers the pitch, which means they can hit that high note, and then you put it back to the regular speed after you record it. Uh, It changes the timbre a little bit. Now, what Prince did, I think the first time I heard him use it was on Erotic City, on his guitar tone, but he, he would he would sometimes change the pitch by a whole octave and sometimes just some variations in between. The reason he employed that technique for his voice on Shockadelica, the song where he's, he's talking about Camille, that Camille voice, he employed that because he was considering another alter ego, another band like The Time or Vanity Six that he could take on tour with him, that would be another outlet for his music. He never saw that idea through to completion. At that time, the Camille character, it wasn't clear if that character was male or female, and it wasn't clear if Camille was dead or alive. Camille was kind of a ghost. So he was just formulating this idea of a ghost, kind of a ghost or a spirit or something that me might be called Camille. If you remember from the song Shockadelica, the opening lines are, the lights go out, the smell of doom is creeping into your living room. 
the bed's on fire, your fate is sealed, and the reason is Camille, Shakadelica. So he's talking about this spirit that has creeped into your room. He just never completed the idea. But that, that was not new, using very speed on the tape machine to change his timbre. We did that on vocals, on guitars. You can do it on bass and get that nice fat bass tone. You can do it on your drums. It was a common technique. This is more of a technical question, but did you use the very speed for all the Camille tracks, or did you use, um, somebody asked about a Publison Infernal uh, machine? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Publison Infernal machine. There we go, Publison. Publison, yeah. It was made by this inventor over in France, and uh, recording engineers like me either loved it or hated it. Personally, I loved it, but you had to be patient with it because it broke a lot. The Publison would do pitch change over a wide octave range and really smoothly. It was a well-designed machine. I was playing around with it alone in the studio one day, and I pitch changed Prince's vocal down a full octave using the Publison, and that was to play with the song Bob George. Sure. I don't know if you've heard that song, Bob George, but Prince came into the room and he heard that and he loved it. It really made him laugh. He absolutely loved it. So yeah, we used the Publison sometimes. He was very familiar, though, with the very speed technique. Now, the thing about the very speed is that if you go down or up a full octave, you're good. The song stays in the same key. But if you go anything more or less than an octave, you're not in the same key anymore. So uh, you have to transpose if you're going to do it with your musical instruments. If the song's in the key of G and you're going to very speed it down uh, to E or D or whatever you got, you have to be able to transpose, which he could do so easily and so well. Not all musicians could do that, but it was very easy for him. Right. Very interesting. So the Publisad was. Bob George. <laughs> I I happen to love that song. It's a very uh I do. It's a it's a favorite among the hardcore fans, definitely. The black album again, uh <laughs> you know, it's part of this era as well. And it's 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 just a revolutionary album. I don't mean to be punny there, but mm-hmm. uh it's a revolutionary album and Bob George the the effect on his voice for Bob George was very very cool. We had fun with that. Yeah, very interesting about the the pitching up and pitching down and transposing. And I'm not I can't read music or or work with music uh, in that technical way, but it's very interesting and fascinating to hear about. It's so easily done. It's so easily done today with so many of the digital tools. We can pitch change and we can correct timing and all sorts of mistakes in the digital era. But back then, when we worked on analog tape, this is something that I I really hope young people will try and understand about Prince. When you listen to those older Prince records and even his new Prince records, understand that that's how well he played. That's how well he sang. No machine came in there and fixed his timing errors or his pitch errors. He didn't make timing and pitch errors. <laughs> like what you hear is how he played it. And, and and that's hard for young people today who have only known digital audio to recognize. It makes me smile because it's just mind-blowing how 
I don't want to say perfect, but I mean how how much of an ingenue he really was, you know, really. Um, and like you say, I mean, that's, there are no digital tricks. I mean, it's absolutely how he played it, how he laid it down to tape, and it's just remarkable. I don't think we'll see anything like that from any artist, especially now in the digital era where you could just go in and tweak things. And, you know, I mean, it's just... Yeah. absolutely remarkable and inspiring to me that he was able to work like that and and like right. you say he was he was really focused on on being creative and basically just pumping things out you know consistently and constantly and it's just fascinating and mind-blowing to think about yeah. Now you had mentioned you had mentioned work ethic earlier, and I'm glad that you mentioned it. Um, he had an extraordinary work ethic, and ethic is the right word. He believed that it was the right thing to do. That if you've got this skill, and if you have this money, if you've got a record deal, and and you have the means, and you can do it, you should do it. So he almost felt a moral obligation to work as hard as he possibly could. There was a sentence he used to say sometimes, and that is, uh, we put bread on people's tables. He would say that when he was talking about his employees. Prince didn't go and just fire people on a whim or anything like that. He really took his responsibilities as a boss, as an employer, seriously. He took it seriously. And of course, he's a young man. Of course, he's going to have a temper tantrum now and then. But he, he, he was a good man. And he was conscientious about this engine and this train. The engine was driving the train that we were all riding on. We were all contributing fuel to the engine of his creat- creativity. And the other thing I wanted to mention was something you said about bursts of creativity. That's how most of us mere mortals are creative. So there's a couple of circuits in the right hemisphere of the brain that get activated when we're creative. And when we're being creative, here's an example I can use. Um, if I have to design a poster for an event, uh, I'm, I'm not especially good at it. I'm not the world's worst, but I'm not it's not my forte. So I'm thinking, oh, I've got to design a poster. And when we have to come up with something creative, whether it's a book or a song or a poster or whatever, we have to open up certain circuits and let new ideas flow. And that's hard work. But when those new ideas do flow, what we're really eager to do is to stop them once we have a good one. So what most of us do is, okay, I've got an idea. All right, let's do it like this. Okay, okay, okay here's how we do it. And you've got an idea, and you're so relieved. Woo, I've got an idea. <laughs> now you can go over to the easier work, which is the work of craft. So if, if you consider original ideas as being art, then craftsmanship is technique. It's making your idea come true. So in the case of the poster, I'd say, okay, I've got an idea. This will be the color scheme, and this is how I want to distribute the colors, and this is what the trim will be, and the text will look like this, and the font should be this big. Now, for folks who are hyper-creative, like Prince was, they've got kind of a leaky faucet. So for most of us, we turn on the tap for creativity, and then we turn it off when we're ready to move over to craft and get some things done. 
But for folks who are really creative, and I've known one other musician who was as creative as Prince, the circuit doesn't close completely, which means the ideas just keep coming and coming and coming and coming and coming. So he had to go through his craft very quickly. This is why we had to work long, long hours. This is why he had to be facile on so many different instruments. He couldn't stop and wait for someone to drive down to the studio and play bass or drive down to the studio and sing backing vocals. He needed to be able to do it all himself because the ideas were coming so fast. He, he mentioned that in interviews many, many times where he said, it's very difficult for me to sleep, he said, because the ideas just keep coming. That's that right precunious, and it is, it is very extraordinary. Most people don't have that. Yeah, I know on the... On the pre-show last night on YouTube before the uh, before the New Year's Eve concert, Susanna Melvoin was talking, and she mentioned that Prince would call her like at 4 a.m. in the morning and ask her to get down to the studio, and if she was late, he would simply say, "Well, you missed it. You missed out," and that's that speaks to exactly what you're saying about. You know, this inspiration, this engine, you know, constantly running and things constantly coming to him. And (laughs) he had to work fast to get it all out. So, yeah, it's very, it's very interesting. And once again, very fascinating to hear about his, his creative process and the way his mind worked. Yeah, he truly was extraordinary, and I've worked with exceptional talents. I've worked with Bare Naked Ladies. Those guys are no slouch. They're amazing. I've worked with David Byrne. I've worked with so many great producers and and, and so many great artists. I know creativity. I've been around it a lot, but there was no one quite like Prince. Definitely, definitely, and that's why he's an inspiration and continues to be and will continue to be until the end of time to quote the lyric to adore. (laughs) But, um, I have some more questions. Uh, my friend Raymond J. Hanson, uh, (laughs) actually gave me quite a few questions, but I might only, uh, ask a few. Did Prince submit, wouldn't you love to love me to Michael? before or after being said bad to consider as a duet? Mm, I'm afraid I don't know the answer to that one. I remember the song, Wouldn't You Love to Love Me? It was one of his older pieces. Um, I'm going to guess that it was afterward. Prince wouldn't normally have sent songs to Michael Jackson. Why would he do something like that? (laughs) Uh, I'm not speaking that in a a flippant way. It's just because uh, he would have assumed, he had a lot of respect for Michael, and he would have assumed that Michael would not have wanted any songs from him. I don't think he would have been presumptuous enough to think, yeah, you know, Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones, they're really hurting for songs. He probably wouldn't have thought that. It makes more sense that he would have sent it afterward because he felt bad about saying no. He was a conscientious person, but I can I can tell you just a personal anecdote around that story. I don't 
I don't recall if I was there when the conversation took place. I don't believe I was. I know I was in the room when Michael was talking with Quincy about um, the We Are the World sessions. That I have a memory of. But I don't think I was there for that conversation. But anyway, Prince told me about it, that Michael had asked him to do a duet on his upcoming single. And I said, oh, that'd be great. That's what we're going to do it, right? It'd be, it'd be great. The fans would love it. <laughs> and I remember him sitting in the chair and turning around, and the look he gave me was like, what are you, an idiot? <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, don't be naive. <laughs> he Prince was smart enough to know that Michael was asking him to compete. And as Prince said, he said, Michael is a racehorse. He's a racehorse. It, it, Michael was asking Prince to compete with him on his own, on Michael's turf, to take Michael's right. song and Michael's producer and Michael's engineer and Prince come into Michael's world to do a duet one-on-one with Michael. It would certainly not put Prince at any sort of advantage. It wouldn't even make them equal. And the opening line of the song is, Your butt is mine. <laughs> It's just not gonna, Prince. I mean, it's not going to happen. Now, I, uh, I, I, I know. I can say with confidence that Prince valued having Michael as a competitor. Competition makes you work harder. If you don't have yep. any competition, you don't have to work very hard. But if you've got someone who is neck and neck with you in the race, you're going to run as fast and as hard as you possibly can. So he appreciated having Michael there, but I don't think he felt in the least bit threatened by Michael musically. And I certainly do not believe for one minute that he was jealous of Michael musically, not at all. I I, I don't think he felt the least bit threatened. Prince had his own thing. Michael had his thing. And Prince was smart to recognize that this is not the invitation from Michael is not a gesture of generosity. It's, it's a stratagem in, in the game of competition. Yeah, that's interesting to think about and ponder and consider. You know, they were, they were contemporaries. They were, they were, well, according to the media, they were fierce rivals. But I think, I think they both respected one another and really admired each other's work more than oh, more yeah. than the media would lead us to believe. Yes. And I would say rivals, yes. Fierce, not at all. R- appreciative rivals, I think, would be the correct way. And right, I, I, there you I, go. Uh, yeah, I was asked to comment on something. Um, years later, there was some uh, Prince and... Um, What's his name? Justin Timberlake. When Prince was still alive, of course, uh, there was the, a, a moderate back and forth going on in the media between the two of them because Justin Timberlake said he was going to bring Sexy back, and I think Prince said something back. And and it, it, some reporter contacted me and asked me to comment on that that rivalry, and I had to say, oh. You know, I haven't worked for Prince in a long time, but I can tell you this with one hundred percent confidence. He loves this. He yeah. loves. He loves being challenged because when when someone challenges you, 
you have something to push against. There's pressure. And if no one is challenging you, you're pushing into a vacuum of empty space. You want pushback, just like any student wants his or her teacher to be strict with them. You learn a lot more when your teacher pushes back than when your teacher's, yeah, that's that's great. That's perfect. Yeah, just keep doing what you're doing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, you want to be challenged. So I, I'm quite certain there was there was love and respect and appreciation there with Justin Timberlake, just like there was with uh, Michael Jackson. Right. Did Prince ever, and I know you, you addressed this earlier about, um, you know, when you were working, it was focused on work, but did Prince ever give any inkling about what was to become of his unreleased material eventually after his eventual passing. Mm-hmm. I know you initiated the idea of the vault um, to preserve his music. Did Prince himself ever give any inkling or indication to you in conversation about what the ultimate fate of of that vault music would be? That's a good question. Uh there were a few hints, not dropped to me, but I, I, I know about this from members of his band, that occasionally he would drop the hint when he was very young that he, he thought he might die young. Huh. And, uh, and, and after his 30s passed, I would imagine that that idea went away. But in general, rock stars don't think they're ever going to die. Now, I've talked to some of my colleagues who work with some very, very famous, legendary rock stars, and we all kind of notice the same thing. The reason a lot of them don't bother writing up a will or making plans for after they pass away is they just kind of can't believe that they're going to. Now, Leonard Cohen was an exception. David Bowie was an exception. Lou Reed was an exception. But they are starting, uh, they're setting the example for many others. So I cannot say that Prince talked with me. He did not talk with me about uh, what might happen with his vault material after he passed away. I have been asked a related question sometimes in interviews, and that question is, what do you think Prince would think of this vault material being released? And here's what I want to say about that. Every single song we did was something that Prince was proud of, and he would have been okay with people hearing. I say that with confidence because the one song that I know of that he didn't want anyone to hear was the original version of Wally, and that's the one that that we erased. We yep. erased it top to bottom, and he, he knew immediately he didn't want anyone hearing it, and he immediately, when the last note was finished and we made a, a, a rough mix onto cassette for him, he said, erase it, and I believe he was the one that pushed the record button. He did. We did collectively. Everything else he saved, which leads me to think that he was okay with all of this being heard. I I think what differentiated between what went in the vault and what was actually released had to do with the entire album and with what he felt like saying right now. At this particular point in time, here's what he wants you to know. Other things, save it for later. Put it in the vault. Case in point, I could never take the place of your man. That was an old song. Slow Love, that was an old song. He pulled those up out of the vault because he was ready for them. He was ready to say these things on Sign of the Times. He just hadn't been ready before. 
Right. Some of the things he put in the vault, I, I venture to believe that he put them in the vault because he knew we weren't ready to listen to them or fully digest them because <clears throat> some of the vault tracks on the new release of Side of the Times Deluxe, I've listened to them and I'm like, my mind is completely, absolutely, utterly blown to pieces. And I'm like, if this had been released back in 86 or 87, people wouldn't have known what to make of it. I mean, they wouldn't have been ready for the sheer the sheer wonder of it i mean people wouldn't have been prepared back in 1987 so you hear some of these vault tracks and you understand why he wasn't ready to unleash them upon the world as it were yeah and it's just and to me as a hardcore fan it's just fascinating and it makes me smile and laugh because you know, as another testament to Prince's genius, he knew he knew what the public was ready for, what he was ready to put out there, and he knew he knew what to hold back. And some fans, including myself, when we hear this stuff, we're like, "Why did he not release this?" You know, we're almost angry. Really, essentially, I think he knew what to put out there and what to hold back. And like you say, um, the the main thrust of his decision-making process was based on how he lived his life, living in the present, being fully present, living in the now, and what he felt was pertinent to the time, to the, to the feel of the environment. And he put out what he wanted to do at that particular time. Yeah. So it's just, it's just fascinating and very, very, uh, very cool to think that how hyper aware he was in terms of selecting songs to put out there and mm. when, and you know, the timing of it all. It's very, yeah. very, very cool. I definitely couldn't understand it. I loved Train. Oh, I loved Train. And I loved Crucial. And I loved In a Large Room with No Light. And the first version that we did of Witness for the Prosecution. Oh, I loved it so much. Oh, all those tracks are awesome. Yeah. I couldn't understand. Why, why, why aren't you releasing these? I didn't understand. I, 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 I would push back a little bit, but it wasn't my place. He worked without a producer. So there's no producer in the room. He's deciding 100% what is going to be released, what his albums are going to be for his own logic, for his own reasoning. It had nothing to do with putting out his very best songs and taking lesser material and putting it in the vault. He he was smart enough to know that many of those tracks in the vault were as great as anything he released. What what it was, what his thinking was, was what do I want people to know about me right now? And one other factor that's very important is, and it certainly influenced Sign of the Times, 
is the band that you've got standing behind you on stage. So Wendy and Lisa brought something to Prince's music, and Bobby Z brought something to Prince's music, and Mark Brown that was different from Levi Caesar and Sheila E. and Bonnie Boyer and Miko Weaver. These are very different players. So when you're putting together the Sign of the Times album, you have to be thinking about the tour, and you have to be thinking about what sorts of tracks will complement these players that I'm going to have behind me. That, right. that, 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 was a, that was a factor as well that is non-trivial, as they say. Right. I mean, it's got to fit the type of musicians you have, the type of vibe you have. It's got to it's got to be able to fit together right. and vibe together. So, yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah. Well, we have yeah. about 15 minutes left and I would be rude and remiss if I didn't ask you to speak a little bit about the book that you're currently working on about music listening and it involves a little bit of neurology too, doesn't it? Hmm. Yes, thank you. You are so kind. I appreciate that very much. Um, yes, for listeners who don't know, I have a PhD in music perception and cognition. And um, so I'm at Berkeley College of Music and I teach in two departments. I teach psychoacoustics and music cognition, but I also teach uh, record production. So I'm constantly going back and forth in conversations with students about how to make records. And then I'm also talking about what the brain is doing when it's listening. And these ideas have been developing for the last 12 years since I've been at Berkeley. And I got invited by a, a, a co-author. Um, he invited me. He's at Harvard. And he said, would you like to write a book together? And uh, he said, it would be your thoughts on music listening. And I said, yeah, let's do it. So we happened to get a book deal last February. We're very excited. We're working on it now. Essentially, the perspective I'm taking is I want to help readers understand how three populations of people listen to music. One is a record producer, so we're going to talk about record record listening from a producer's vantage point. The other is a brain scientist. There'll be some science in there. But the third is my own uh, perspective, which most listeners share. I'm a non-musician. I don't play anything. I don't sing. I don't write music. I don't know music theory, only the most basic stuff. All of the listening I've ever done in my life, all of my music consumption, has been driven by a desire to hear music. For us non-musicians, our entire relationship with music comes from listening. Yeah. And my Yeah, and my whole life I have been a professional music listener. Well, my whole adult life. When I was a little kid, I was obsessed with listening to records. And I knew darn good and well, I don't want to be a rock star. I don't want to be singing. I don't want to be playing. I don't want to be dancing. I don't want to be a DJ. I don't want to be a record executive. I want to be in the room where music happens so I can help records enter the world. For me, music is records. And I don't mean just vinyl records. I mean recordings, whether it's a streaming right. or whatever, a recording. So we're, we're going to talk about various aspects of music and certain one of the finer points we're going to put on it is why we like what we like and that's going to be directly related to the kind of rewards we want from music so as it turns out 
ever since I was a little kid, when I listen to music, my favorite treat, the thing I love more than anything, is picturing the musicians playing and singing. I have been doing that since I was five, six, seven years old. I put on a record, I listen to the music I love, and I'm picturing the artists playing and singing, either in the studio or on stage. My co-author is completely the opposite. When he listens to music, he likes electronic music and techno and stuff. Oh, he doesn't, okay. Yep, yeah, he doesn't want to see any people at all. In fact, it ruins it wow. for him if he sees wow. people. He sees imaginary worlds. He sees planets that don't exist and, and sci-fi. And sometimes he sees abstract shapes and colors. He and I are involved in a research project right now where we went around, or we, we asked uh, nearly 2,000 music listeners in the United States what they visualize in their heads when they listen to music. Turns out both of us are in the minority. Uh, not that many people actually picture the band and not that many people picture abstract shapes and colors. Most people, when they listen to music, picture themselves and their own lives. They feel nostalgia and, and they, they, they see themselves and their circle of friends and family and the, the, the context of their life around the time that song was popular. A lot of people make up stories from the lyrics. They listen to the lyrics and then they imagine either the artist or themselves in that kind of a story related to the lyrics. And some people actually don't see anything at all, but some people see natural scenes like beaches or the mountains or 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 the forest and things like that some people the some of the young video gamers they actually see they've told me this the room that would go with that music they listen to music and they'll see like a video game like a room or a city or a basement or something what that tells us is that when we choose music to listen to for enjoyment your brain is telling you I would like a treat. I want to do something fun. I want to get lost. And I, I want to go to my happy place. I want to have my happy fantasies. But for all of us, uh, those fantasies are, are, uh, are personal. They're personal to our own desires and our own needs. We're writing about that in this book, and it's been really, really fun so far. Very, very interesting. And I'm sure I'm working on my my memoir currently and I'm sure your book is eventually going to inform it somewhat because I've been listening to Prince technically since I was an infant but when it really clicked for me was when I was three years old I heard Little Red Corvette on the radio and I'm giving away my age I turned 40 in March so this would be 1983 when Little Red Corvette was the big single and ever since then, you know, I talk about in my memoir that even before I understood what the lyrics were, I had a spiritual connection mm. to the music and the way Prince's voice sounded. It just resonated with me spiritually. And I was, of course, at that age, I was unable to articulate exactly what I was feeling and experiencing, but it was very it was very spiritually uplifting and almost transcendent. So to me music is transcendent and especially Prince's music I talk about this in my memoir as well. 
and I tell anybody who's within earshot about it, but Prince's music to me, uh, I was born three months premature and lost oxygen three separate times, mm, oh. so which resulted in cerebral palsy. Ah, rough. So, for me, listening to Prince's music takes me to a spiritual place where I'm free from any physical limitations, and I actually connect with my higher self, that is to say, the self that exists separately from the physical body and is more of a spiritual mm. spiritual essence of the of the immortal soul. Mm. So that's what music does for me. And I'm kind of in between in between when you were describing the types of listeners, I'm kind of in between those who picture themselves and their lives and also the artist performing or singing in the studio. I kind of, for me, it's kind of a hybrid of both of those because I could see, I could see Prince in my mind's eye when I listen to his music, whether he's in the studio or on stage. I see him when I hear the music, but I also connected to myself. Mm-hmm. in my life, and especially my spiritual sense of belief and faith. And so it's very interesting to hear about the three different types of listeners. And I will definitely, I'm working, it's still in the early stages, but I've got I've got some of the little bits and pieces of the chapters completed for my memoir. Crazy. I'm not completely... You know, I don't have anything completely done except for the prologue right now. But, uh, yeah, that will definitely factor into my memoir. And, by the way, um, if you're interested, my memoir is about vignettes or snippets or scenes of my life where Prince's music or his example through behavior and action inspired me to learn and grow and be a better person. Wow. Um, so that's what my memoir is going to be about. And he's, he's definitely going to figure prominently in the book. Mm. And I'm kind of my creativity right now, as far as the memoir is concerned, it's kind of stifled because I'm getting in my own head and apprehensive about how, the prince estate is going to receive this if they're going to embrace it or reject it or whatever so it's kind of stalling the creative process for me right now but i hope to get past that and and create a work of inspiration and just something uplifting that that people in the prince fan community and people in the cerebral palsy community uh, friends and family and people that are that are affected by cerebral palsy and health professionals. Uh, I want both of those communities to be uplifted and inspired by my story of how this artist, this musician, this great man helped me grow emotionally and spiritually 
it mm. continues to uplift me even after he left the mortal plane of existence. Yes. Let me say something to you and put your mind at ease. I don't think you have to worry about the estate at all. Now, Prince okay. died, yeah, he died four years ago, and they've never once, they've contacted me, and, you know, they've told me, they've always given me the green light for interviews and stuff like that, and I think the reason they've never had any problem with me is I've never, I've been talking about my my life my experiences, what I saw when I was in the studio with Prince. So right. I'm not attempting to speak for Prince. I'm not representing Prince. And when people do ask me a question like, what is, about the, the, thing, the difference between Prince and Michael Jackson and the rivalry, I'm always making it clear this is my perspective and my vantage point. And you can't right. argue with that. So it sounds like you're writing a book that is... This is your view of Prince. This is your life. This is how Prince impacted your life. And you, you are at liberty to write about your life, as I am at liberty to write about mine. We can talk about our own lives. What right. the estate wants to do is they don't want other people speaking for Prince. Right. But you can speak for yourself. So I, I wouldn't worry about that. The book sounds like it's going to be really amazing and wonderful. And as a matter of fact, as I get a little further along in my own book, I'd like to uh, send you an email and see if we can talk very briefly. In the very last chapter of the book, um, I'm asking friends and family to uh, describe for me what it sounds like when they listen to a song they love. Just a song that yeah. they absolutely love. And I want to hear, I want to have, uh, have the voices of a lot of people at the end of the book be talking about, this is what it sounds like to me. This is what a record sounds like to me. I would love to hear your impressions of a song. As we get a little closer, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit you up <laughs> and see if I can get you to, to tell me what a... Pick a song, any song that you love. Oh, and one other thing I have to tell you is there's more than three types of, of uh, okay. music visualizations. Yeah, we actually uncovered seven different categories, but uh, wow. other... Yeah, other researchers might find fewer or they might find more than that, but there are a lot of different things, including including visualizing oneself playing and and of course those people who have it's called aphantasia which is the inability to visualize things so some yep. people don't see anything at all but uh, for me personally I like to try to imagine that I can play piano or play guitar like that but I can never keep it up I can never sustain that fantasy it's as if my brain is saying that's not that's not me. And yeah. what it goes to is a fantasy that is rewarding and is truly, I believe, reflective of my true nature. I see the musicians playing and singing. And I think that's why I was born to be a record maker, because it's, it's something my brain would really like to be doing. <laughs> is being right. there while music is happening. So it's an interesting right. thing about brains and rewards and, and how brains use music to find their little treats, you know, the rewards that they want to, to go to their happy place. Right. Well, I'll, it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. I'm very, very much looking forward to the book, and I'll definitely get a copy as soon as it comes out. I'll be promoting it like crazy on social media. Well, you let me send you one. <laughs> and uh, 
yeah, I might even, I might even have you on again if we could schedule it. Wow. To talk more in depth about the book, and um, yes, I'm I'm very very honored to have you on and to be talking with you. It's like it's overwhelming in a word. Thank you. I thank you for your graciousness and your kindness in doing this, and it was just a tremendous experience, and like I say, a tremendous honor for me to talk to you about this man that we both love and respect so much and that impacted our lives in such a profound way and it's just been a pleasure speaking with you you and i can't wait for other people to hear this and give their input and i'm sure you're going to be getting lots of respect and love as usual Uh it's well deserved Thank you, and I appreciate you and the fans as well. After Prince died, one of the things that scared me the most, the thing that scared me the most, is that future generations wouldn't be able to pick him out of a lineup, that future generations wouldn't know the difference between Prince and any other artist from the 80s or 70s or the 90s, and I thought that would be terrible. He was so extraordinary. His memory needs to live on. And it's folks like you, podcasters, journalists, writers, scholars. It's the people who are keeping this conversation going. They're the people who are keeping his memory alive so that new young people can discover him and so people can eavesdrop on the conversation and they can recognize, no, no, there was this guy and he was from Minneapolis and he was exceptional and we should know about him. So you're doing that good work and I thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Well, you're very, very welcome. It's my pleasure and it's something I'm passionate about. Um, There's going to be a New England Cerebral Palsy Conference it's virtual this year, and I've been asked to be a breakout speaker. Yay! And my session is going to be about this podcast, why I got into podcasting, and how I was inspired originally to start a podcast and throw my own unique voice into the the circle of fans that, as you say, continue to do the work in spreading the message and the vital importance of Prince's legacy. So that should be an interesting experience. Yeah. Um, And I'll definitely be referencing this particular podcast episode as one of my favorites that I've done Uh so far. Um, Thank you. And uh, so, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Well, thank you so much. I'm, I'm keeping you longer than I should, but, uh, Thank you for coming on the show, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Yes, we'll be in touch. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.